It was, I mean, it, it feels small and that the story is appropriately fit to its size. Um, oh, fuck you. I did fuck not do that no. on purpose. Yeah, fu- get the I fuck out. I didn't. Bullshit. I did not do that on purpose. Bullshit. I cry. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster having a very thoughtful and green Earth Day, I hope, in San Diego, California. And I, of course, am speaking to Cassidy Robinson, Mm -hmm. who is recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes. So it it is technically Earth Day. It won't be when you're listening to this, but we are recording on Earth Day. Two days ago, it was the other kind of Earth Day. What? Was that a 420 joke? Yeah, it was a weird one. No, it just was a bad one. (laughs) Weird and bad are different things. Well, I was just going to reassure everybody that this is a a green podcast and that we don't uh, fuck with any NFTs or anything like that. At least to my knowledge. Well, okay. I mean, (laughs) no. Yes, absolutely fuck NFTs, but... What? You are <laughs> wild tonight. You are just like, Earth Day, uh, 420, uh, we do folk with NFTs. Like, what's up, <laughs> Joe Rogan, bro? Like, I'm just throwing you bits, and then you, you got to sh- form them and shape them into something. These are not bits. These are just words that are, like, the most tangentially related things possible. These are just the buzzwords on Twitter. You know, I, I feel just like just be reading the what's trending right now. I always think of Earth Day in regards to being in grade school because mm-hmm. that's when, you know. That's the last time anything was real. Right. And that's the last <laughs> time when uh, anybody pretended to care about the environment, even though they were not going about it in any kind of real way. Um, yeah. But we would do things like we would uh, – Go out into the playground and pick up garbage, and whoever had the most garbage in their bag would get a candy or something like that. Or yeah. um, I, I remember there, there was this fascination in the 90s. Maybe it's still a thing. I don't know. Um, with, uh, with oh, oh, what do they call that when you bury some shit so that people can find it later? Treasure? No. Not like you're talking about buried time capsules. Time capsules. Oh, uh, uh, well, there's we had to make other... our own time capsules. Are you, we are you talking about geocaching. No, that's that's like a whole different thing. No, we had to make our own time capsules. We we were told to bring some like items from home that we wouldn't mind getting rid of that we would remember, and then. We had to bring like a little like two liter plastic thing of soda, you know, like empty. And then we cut it a certain way or whatever, put our items in it, and then buried these somewhere in the playground. I'm sure like sometime later that day, the teachers just like dug them up and threw them away. I <laughs> love that their idea for Earth Day is, is to litter, take plastic and bury it into the ground. Non, non-decomposable plastic. Right. That will be around for a hundred years. Well, that's the idea. So yeah. maybe I should go to the uh, the playgrounds of Teton Elementary and see if I can find my my capsule. That'd be fucking crazy if it was there. Yeah, I I think I did, tried to do a time capsule once. Uh, I I I remember like putting a time capsule thing together. Like I think Ooh. it was like a shoebox when I was a kid. And I buried it in my backyard, and I think I dug it up like a week later. Right. Because you yeah. actually wanted those things, you didn't actually want to get rid of them? No, it was just more like, whoa. You were already we're, nostalgic from a we week ago. We were a week in the future. Oh my god, I remember this from last week. Like, I'm yeah. pretty sure I, I was I was a dumb kid. Right. Okay, so today on this episode, we are going to be talking about the Shudder original uh, Slacks. As our main review, and then at the end of the program for our streaming homework, we're talking about the 2017, that's when it came out, right? I think so. 2017 
documentary Batman and Bill, which is on yes. Hulu. But yeah, we'll get into all of that. Uh, first, I want to get into a little Consumo Bay. Um, what we've uh, been watching, what we've been listening to, what are we obsessed with? Uh, reading, perhaps. And I'll start us off, since you didn't know I was going to be doing this until right now. I finally watched the 1994 miniseries of The Stand. Oh, okay. Did I tell you that I just very recently watched the like the new Stand miniseries? The CBS All Access one? Yeah. Uh, no, you did not. Okay. Well, we can have a standoff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested because I know that the, the, the new one is kind of different. More than just updated, but also... They do different things with the chronology, which yeah. some fans were not big on. I um, wasn't. But I'm first of all, I've never read the book. And part okay. of the reason that I watched the miniseries was so that I would read the book. Okay. Because I know that there's like a hundred characters. And no, there's, there's not that many. There's a lot. I'm being a little hyperbolic, but there's like somewhere around 20 to 30 characters. If you're consider counting all the different groups, I wanted to uh, be able to have some version of them in my head before I dive into the book, because I know that it's going to be fairly difficult. I had a hard time with the losers club reading it. I was so, like every like time they would switch characters. I'd be like, okay, is this the fat one? Or is this, I mean, other than Beverly, so but anyway, so I wanted to watch the miniseries. Even though I knew it was going to be super dated and probably sort of shitty. But it is as far as one of those like mid-90s Stephen King made-for-TV things. It's probably the best one. Yeah, um, I, think, I, I think you're right there. Um, as far as I can tell, I think mo most people still rank it higher than the new one. As far as like <laughs> Stephen King adaptations. Right. I mean, I know the fans were disappointed with the new one. People who had either read the book or had had an affinity for the 94 one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not like perfect. It's certainly corny. And there's like, there's like TV, like just dated like TV production yeah. stuff that you just have to kind of forget about or you get used to. But I mean, it has a pretty cool cast. There's a lot of like real actors. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Gary, Gary Sinise, Sinise is the, uh, is the lead. Um, yeah. Uh, Rob Lowe, the dude from coach. Yeah. I can't think of any of the characters names right now. I Tom uh, that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tom, he's like my favorite character in the book. Um, did you read uh, the book? Yeah. I read it last year. Oh, okay. I didn't know that you did. So, so, you know, besides like it, the 94 one being dated and then, and I don't know how much it is or is not like the book, but I don't really like the third act. I think uh, once I they kind of agree with there you. isn't really um, a stand, at least in the miniseries, just people decide to leave and then they just start dying for no reason, have zero impact on the plot. But well, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm reading this other book. I'm reading On Writing by the, Stephen King. Right, yeah, his um, book on it, on writing. It, yeah, it's like a autobiography slash writing book. Mm -hmm. And he actually talks about plot, and he just is. He's like, I don't, I don't fuck with plot. I don't even think about plot. He, what he does is he tries to think of a situation, a premise. Um, to yeah, a premise. Yeah. Uh, and he puts characters in it, and then he's like, and then I just kind of let them. There's a lot of Stephen King stuff that isn't, like, very plotty. Plot yeah, and then people talk about his endings or whatever. Anyway, uh, what did you, what did you think of of the new one? Um, I Did kind you of watch agree. the whole I, thing? Yeah, I did. Uh, I kind of agree with you. When I read the book, I was a little disappointed by the ending. I was like, it, it feels... It's not that it's anticlimactic, because it, it's very climactic. It just kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. It feels like there's all this setup, and then he's just like, oh, shit, I got to wrap this up in, like, 50 pages. Right. But then there's, I don't know if the, the 90s miniseries had it, but there's, like, kind of this whole postscript stuff that happens after all the stuff goes down in Vegas. The, um, there is a little bit. I th I think it's probably truncated for the miniseries. Um, so because I don't remember much of it, but there's a lot of stuff with like a baby and da da da. 
So this version, I think it did some stuff really well and did some stuff really badly. Um, I I think a lot of the imagery was cool. I mean, mm-hmm. that, you know, it was very visually like like definitely updated. Right. Um, Spare no expense, think, big budget. Yeah, I yeah. think that uh, Alex Scars was it Alex one of the Scars cards. Alexander Scars card, yeah, yeah, uh, plays Randall Flag. I think he was pretty badly miscast. Yeah, basically there was they cut weird stuff out and then like added a new ending in to the miniseries. Mm. I was like, I didn't need this. Like, just give me, give me, give me the book. Like, it's pretty accurate up until then, but it like I feel like it cut. Like uh, see, I cut. think you could make the ending better without no, it's just like without like post- losing the essence of what the ending means. Yeah, but you could just like make it not stupid, basically, and give the characters a little bit more to do in the in the in the ending. I think that okay, this mini the new mini series I think actually does a pretty good job at that. Yeah, but it just it still feels like weirdly rushed. Right. Um, and I don't know. It's just. I think it'd be very interesting for you, like, to watch both and kind of compare them because I I think yeah. it probably does some stuff right that the old one doesn't do, and then the old one probably gets stuff right. Like, if you're taking the time to be like, we're bringing this book to life, yeah, like why cut the trash can man story like totally out of it? It's so weird. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was fine. Okay, the book's better. Okay, my other thing that I wanted to mention is. Musician, songwriter Jeff Rosenstock just released a ska version of his last album. Um, in 2020, he released the album No Dreams, um, which is kind of like more in sort of a pop punk power pop fashion, you know, with a singer songwriter quality to it, a little bit more densely lyrical, um, which is sort of his thing and a little bit more personal, but has a kind of like, you know, punk energy. I've always kind of considered Jeff Rosenstock to sort of be like the modern day Elvis Costello. Oh, okay. Um, he doesn't like necessarily sound like that, but I think that's the role he's playing in today's yeah, I, I get what you music mean. scene. Yeah. Um, and I love everything he's done, uh, especially in his solo career. Um, he originally, he was in a ska band called Bond the Music Industry. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's always kind of, even though he's not really playing ska anymore, he's always been a very strong ska advocate. And uh, he he just, on a whim, uh, on 420 released uh, a, a full ska version of No Dreams with a bunch of, like, uh, guest musicians coming in to do, like, horns and whatever. Um, and fun. it's pretty great. I, I mean, I probably like the original version of the album more, but uh, both are cool. Both are cool. And if you are ready for the Rascanasans, um, it'll put you in the mood. Cool. So, cool. There you go. Um, I'll keep mine short since we spent so long talking about the stand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, I I mean, we could record an entire episode about the stand. We I could, could record a whole uh, podcast on it. Yeah, we really could. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, that's basically what the King cast is. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I have been very into uh, this video game called Ghost of Tsushima. Um, okay, is that a console la- or is that a computer game? I think it's I think it's available on everything. Like okay, you could get a game on maybe not the Switch. I don't know. Um, what are you playing it on? I'm playing it on the PlayStation Five. Okay, and uh, it is like an open world uh, samurai thing um and it's basically like red dead redemption but instead of cowboys you're samurai uh in feudal japan and you're like fighting mongol invaders and stuff and it's just like really fucking cool like they just do that really well like they make the the sword fighting like really like it feels like there's actual technique to the sword fighting it's not Mm -hmm. just like button mashing which you can do um and it's also not like overly complicated, like a Mortal Kombat fatality. You Is know, you it don't have to... like a first person point of view or third person? Third person, like, like a third behind... person adventure. Yeah, like, uh, like Red Dead 
redemption in that way. Yeah. 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 It's again, very similar to that, but the, it, it's also just like really pretty. I mean, so is Red Dead Redemption. Uh, but, but they also like, there's like weird little things in it. Like, um, like, you know how there's many missions of like collect this thing mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, in, in this, there's one that's like to go out of your way to like write these haikus. Um, and you, you know, you can like get gear and stuff, but it's just, I don't know, there's more to it than just kill all your enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like the way you kill your enemies kind of like affects the way, uh, characters interact with you. And it's just, it's just really well done. It, it and it's also not a thousand years long. That's the other thing. It's like a very playable game. Mm-hmm. Um, where you feel like I'm getting my money's worth with this game, but not, I have to commit to this game for 10 years, like Skyrim or whatever. Right. And the other thing I've been really into is there's this new comic book out by James Heron. Um, and James Heron is a comic book writer and, and artist. He's done a lot of stuff. Like he's done some stuff for BPRD and Hellboy. Um, uh, he, was the one of the creators of uh, Rumble for Image Comics, and he launched this new comic book called Ultra Mega, and okay, uh, it's released an issue, but like the first issue was like seventy pages, so it's like a it's like a mini graphic novel, like it's a graphic novella, um, and it's about this like power, this Ultra Mega guy, um, who like grows really big and fights kaiju. Um, And it's just like, the first issue was really uh, insanely violent and unpredictable. And just like, it just like fucking goes for it. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, hell yeah. I mean, just look up some of the artwork. Uh, If you just Google James Heron, Ultra Mega, like you'll see he's known for very kinetic um, action oriented artwork. And, and it just like does not pull its punches. It is it is really fun and kind of intense. And he's writing it too. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's being published through Image, I believe. That makes sense. Um, and I didn't mention, but I could have. I'm also watching uh, Invincible on Amazon and loving. Oh it. shit! Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, me too. I really into it. Yeah. I think it's. Um, I didn't read a ton of it when it was coming out in issue. I read the first omnibus because um, I had bought it when I think the first time we went to Comic Con in 08. Uh, yeah, and I had it signed, it signed by Robert Kirkman. I literally yeah, my, bought it so I had something for him to sign. My first volume of uh, uh, The Walking Dead is signed by him. Just for the cool. same reason. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I liked it, but I never really like kept up with it in issue. So I'm still getting like the show, all the reveals and stuff are new to me. And yeah, it's 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 sometimes you can see the budget, um, but for the most part, the art is really well done, and the I, voice casting is perfect. And yeah. I I love the the energy of the show and sort of yeah, like again, there's very this, kinetic, very yeah, vi- uh, very action oriented, but also. A ton of heart, but the, but the action's also really well done. Like good um, characters, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think they kind of even flush out some characters a little bit more. I don't know. I think it's a really good adaptation, and and it I seemed the, really it, accurate for the most part. Like maybe it doesn't. I I've heard that it kind of rushes some things, but it like from what I remember reading it, it feels the same. Yeah, and I mean the. Fucking comic book. I have twelve of those omnibuses. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, like super ultra editions. Uh, you know, it, it finally ended, but um, uh, there's twelve of them that size. So you right. know, that's each one of those is like three gra- normal graphic novel size. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's been going on forever. So I I don't mind if they like skip some of the you know like little f- more filler stuff. I I think it's been. Uh, spot on. And I, I love that the animation is like styled after the comic book art. Mm-hmm. And I just, in general, I'm not terribly uh, happy with a lot of American animation, but I think this does like a really good job of like yeah. being stylized and also like not being clunky and, and cheap looking. 
Yeah, like I said, I think there's there's some effects you can see where they're cutting corners. Like sometimes when they're flying around, it's definitely like a cut a cutout with a moving background. Some things you can tell that they're like putting all of their budget into like you know these big scenes or big moments in the fights yeah. and stuff. But yeah, c- check out Invincible on Amazon. It's it's good shit. Check it out. Cool. Um, let's go ahead and move into our first review, which is uh, Shutter's Slacks. Do you want to describe what's happening in, happening in this movie? What is the plot? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so this uh, this idealistic young girl, Libby, uh, starts working at this uh, department store in. I, guess, I think I guess it's Canadian. It's can. It's Canadian. It's yeah. In, uh, that is like known for being like this super ethical company and like trying to make the world a better place. And so she's like very idealistic and wants to work there because it's like, she feels like even though it's retail, she's doing good. Yeah. It's like- um, and she starts the night that they're like rolling out this new type of uh, shaper pants that adjusts to your body size. So it doesn't even really have like number sizes, this innovative pants technology. <laughs> And also, like, the owner, like, the whole CEO of the company, like, comes down for this rollout, and they're getting, like, an appearance from this Instagram influencer celebrity who's going to come and, like, endorse it while they're, you know, rolling them out on the shelves, uh, because it's, like, so exclusive, they, you know, they want her to do it before the product is actually, like, available to the public. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that a pair of these pants are sentient and start killing people. Yeah. It's about, this is a movie about killer pants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the movie. Yeah. Killer um, pants. <laughs> killer jeans. Well, jeans are pants. They are. Um, this is excessively silly. Uh, it, it is. It is like, I mean, I, I do think it is. I mean, it's trying to be. It yeah. is. I would say, describe it as a horror comedy. Like, yeah, that is the tone know, that they're going for. Yeah. Most of the characters are pretty broad. Uh, pretty broad characterizations. Um, and there's just you know a lot of silly visuals with pants that kill people. <laughs> yeah, um, and this is obviously made for a budget. Um, you know, not a lot of locations. I actually, while watching it, I thought a decent amount about. Uh, that film we reviewed with your friend, um, yeah, bl- Blood Sucking Bastards, because it utilizes a lot of similar techniques in like very few locations, uh, kind yeah. of hiding reveals as you go. Um, when he was talking, just about, a handful uh, of characters. Yeah, when he was talking about how they filmed that uh, Blood Sucking Bastards in like you know this abandoned office space i was like i guarantee this movie was filmed in just like an abandoned you know department store in a mall that you know probably hasn't been used for months and so they got a really like cheap deal for it right if that i mean it could have just been like a you know a used piggly wigglies or something if they redid um yeah and just build a set inside of uh or you know they might have had a studio space i don't know but it was i mean it it feels small and that the story is appropriately fit to its size um oh, fuck you i did fuck not do that no. on purpose yeah, fu- get the i fuck didn't out. bullshit i did not do that on purpose bullshit i cry oh <laughs> fuck you but it's true and also it's only 77 minutes long which yeah big fan of big fan of big that fan of the the big fan of the shorts no, you you did do that. I did, on purpose. I did do that one on purpose. One hundred percent, which will be the sequel. <laughs> I I like this. Okay, I did, I mean, here's the thing: it's going to be kind of a difficult movie to review because I think it accomplished exactly what it set out to do. But what it set out to do is fairly low effort and fairly um, minimal reward. Yeah, I so I'm I'm going to approach this movie from a couple points of view because i agree like i think i think for a short little streaming horror comedy movie you could do a lot worse right absolutely um if the idea if somebody says killer pants to you and you're not immediately rolling your eyes 
Um, yeah, then if you think, oh, that's th- funny. There's a decent chance you'll like this. Yeah. So, first of all, I had my expectations. Mm-hmm. Based off of, like, the poster and just the premise, I thought this was going to be more of, like, a sisterhood of the traveling pants that kills people kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, if you really so wanted I, to open this world up, that would be the direction to go. Exactly. And I, so I was a little, like, taken aback by how low budget it was and how it's like, oh, this is just a slasher movie where the killer is pants. <laughs> yeah. Um, but once I kind of got used to that, I I kind of opened myself up to have a little more fun with what it is. Yeah. Um, I think they do the killer pants really well. Yeah, I think they shoot the a uh, lot of like the horror stuff really well. Uh, the the puppetry of the pants is really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they they I, it, I don't even think it's like that cheesy uh, as far as like the special effects go. I was like, oh damn, they like they did a really good job making those pants look like like I believe those pants could you know like the effects work. Life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I think I it's not. The hardest stuff to pull off. I mean, I think a lot of stuff, you know, you can put a guy in a green suit and then have them wear pants. Um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. And, 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 but that's all you need to do. And it works for, for the sequences that work like that. I mean, there are times when like the pants has like a mouth and eyes and stuff, um, using mm. like the pockets and whatever. And then that, that involves a little bit more like puppetry and probably some, you know, some strings and sticks going on. But all of that works. I mean, I don't know how janky the production values were on on how to pull the pull those effects off but for the screen they work yeah exactly um i think uh, it's very effective um Mm -hmm. um and in general i think uh they're pretty good at maximizing their budget you know again this is very low budget but uh they shoot around it really well like this feels Pretty believable as a store, even though sometimes it looks like the inventory is a little low and stuff. But um, right, well, I mean, the but whole you know, thing... they're also doing like a, a, a restock and an inventory or whatever. So, like, right. again, they make it work. I think where this movie falls short for me, I think sometimes the comedy falls pretty flat, uh, and some of the actors aren't the best. Uh, the one actor who I think drops the ball the hardest is the influencer. Um, yeah, she feels a little over the... She's like, definitely overdoing it. And there's a lot of room for that character to like come in and be this big character and, you know, own the scene. And you obviously don't want to like her the way that they sort of build her up as a spoiled, you know, um, debutante or whatever. It just, but, it doesn't feel super honest. No, it, it doesn't, it also doesn't feel like she's, it feels like the actor is judging the character as much as we are. And yeah. so you never well, really like buy into the performance because it's so over the top. It feels a little high school, um, like community I, theater kind of thing. I kind of feel that's the case with a lot of these characters. I, I think, I think. I'd say less so for everybody else. I think the main the main guy who plays the the store manager, yeah, he's um, pretty good. He's pretty uh, good. He kind of plays like you know he kind of plays it straight. Uh, he's taking the world of the movie seriously as seriously yeah, as he needs to. I I but I mean I think some of the characters that are just sort of set up to be slaughtered. I I yeah. feel like there's this. I feel like the comedy of the movie has kind of a mean-spiritedness to it. Sure, um, yeah. Uh, and like you said, I feel like the actors and the movie is judging these characters and not letting the audience do that. Like, they're playing them all as pretty vapid and pretty despicable. And and I get that that's, you know, supposed to be, like, the subtext, but it, it just feels a little heavy-handed. A little like yes, capitalism is evil. Like everybody who works here is gonna is evil. It's just like, and and I you know I didn't hate all of them, and I think you know some of them were more successful than others yeah. in, in portraying these. But um, I think uh, in uh, general, I just I kind of didn't care when most of the people died because it's no, like, not at all. And I I'm of the the mind of 
when it comes to the slasher formula where it's just more effective if if the characters aren't meant to be strictly cannon fodder and and you are meant to give a shit a little bit. And I just wanted just it, it's, it's a little difficult to do in 77 minutes especially with a movie that's so overtly satirical. Um Yeah. And I think they they sprinkle in some characters you're supposed to care a little bit more about. There's this character, uh, Shruti, played by Sahar Bojani, and she ends up kind of playing into the backstory a little bit. Uh, yeah, she's a little more important than you yeah. than you think. From and the she kind of plays like the office slacker who doesn't give a shit about anything, and then she ends up like becoming more important towards the end. Um, I actually, th- this might be a hot take, but I actually think she should have just been the main character. Yeah, I, I think that I I didn't need the whole like this is the audience a new surrogate. girls or an orientation day like yeah the, all of that felt a little contrived to me and I felt like let's just be in this like everybody knows what a department store like even if you've never worked that job you you kind of get it you like we've all been to department stores you yeah, know yeah, like yeah. we've all sort of like. So I, I felt like we didn't need this cipher character, mm-hmm. um, and the uh, Shruti, like she was the one where most of like had most of that the plot development stuff. So yeah. I just felt like it was really weird that that, and I I also like the main girl. Like, she was also fine, but like she's not really an exciting character. No, not really. Um, and and so I just I was like, well, why? Why not just, I don't know. It just felt like kind of a weird way weird. to get into the story. Yeah. I mean, I think. Yeah. And so then it made some of the things that do develop, which I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but um, it made them feel a little more contrived. Whereas like if this was just, if she was just the main character, I think it might've felt a little more natural. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could, there's a lot of things they could have done or not done. Um, I'm not. I'm I'm not offended by the way they decided to tell the story. Um, I understand like the I because I think more so Libby, the main character, she's she, not only just an audience cipher in that she's being introduced to this world and like all of the things about this store and the grand opening and the Monday Madness yeah, and all that stuff and, like, is the being reveals that it's it's not a very ethical company. Right. Well, that's what I was, that's what I was going to say. It's not just that we're getting plot stuff explained to us through her. We're also sort of experiencing the greater messaging of the movie through her, which is that a lot of times when these companies tout themselves as being fair trade or, you know, I worked in one of these kind of stores, um, not, mm-hmm. not a clothing store, but I worked in a store that touted itself in fair trade and non GMO and, and all of these kinds of words. And, uh, I can tell you because I, I had to know this for my job um, that a lot of times products, they can just put that shit on their boxes and it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, No, there's actual, there's actual like organizations that will certify things as being truly non GMO and truly Mm -hmm. fair trade. And, but you can write fair trade because that's just two words. That means fucking anything. But if it's if you're talking about the actual practices of like the farming and the the you know the resourcing and like the whatever um, yeah. the factory conditions all of that stuff that means fair trade in any kind of like industry standard it has to be certified by a very specific company and if it's not then it's sort of false advertising. I mean I and I I get all that I get all that and I I I still think that would have worked. With, without the main character. And I don't want people to think that I'm just like hating on this girl. I just, I felt like it made some of the, cause some of the third act stuff a little bumpier than it needed right, to be. Right, because we're introduced to the character and she doesn't feel like she's going to be, I mean, I guess the reward of the way they did it is that you think this girl, Shruti, is just as mean and dismissive as everybody else. And then you realize like, oh, she actually has more substance as a person than these other people. But it really yeah. only feels like that because the movie says so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I felt like it, 
I just felt like that needed to be tweaked or something. Like that just there was some little like script things that I was like that's a little weird. It's just like a little awkward. Yeah. Um the way certain things kind of play out. Um but again, I you know, I keep going back to the like this is a movie about killer pants. Right. This is a <laughs> you know, like a no budget horror comedy. So yeah. you know, and I'm probably being way too critical on it than I need to be. Um, but I don't know. It also has some very funny moments. There's there's one moment in particular um, that I didn't really expect to see coming. And I was like, oh, that's really fun. I really like that. And it kind of plays out for story reasons, too, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly the movie is having fun with the premise and knows how ridiculous it is. And even though that it, it's kind of playing around with the ideas of like false conscious capitalism or, um, or consumerism, what have you, uh, it doesn't feel preachy about those things or as preachy as it could. I feel very I much it's, like it's a little preachy, but maybe I don't think it's, that but bad. but it doesn't it doesn't let it ruin itself from having a good time. Right, right. And that that's what I mean. I mean, I feel like this movie is very much a student of like 80s campy horror, like high premise horror. Stuff like Chopping Mall came to mind. Stuff yeah. like uh Larry Cohen's The Stuff that played around with similar ideas. Even even the first child's play kind of like plays around with some of these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I think it's a, it's definitely a sort of a love letter to that era of of horror film that was, you know, talking about consumer culture in the eighties, um, and sort of updating it into like the world of like H and M and Wet Seal and you know all of these kinds of like um, mall clothing chains. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it's like again, I think we've kind of already over talked this movie mm-hmm. because it's i don't think it's it's meant to stand up to this much scrutiny no um you know it's it's just a pretty fun little movie yeah um, it's a horror little trifle um i give it like a b minus it's it didn't it's it's good i don't i can't imagine this ever being anyone's favorite horror movie um uh, even if you're like very into the movies it's referencing it's a good time, but it's it's so low stakes that it's kind of low calories. Yeah, yeah I, that's kind of how I felt about it too. I I think I think a B minus is pretty fair. Like it's just mm-hmm. again, it's short enough that it's like it's a good. I think it would be a good time to watch with friends. Yeah, uh, you know, like a good like oh, this is a silly movie thing. Um, yeah, you wouldn't want it to be much longer. No, it could run out of steam it, really really fast. Yeah, like it, I, there's a couple moments where it almost starts to feel like it's running out of steam, <laughs> just where it is. Um, but it's it's fine. Like if you're into yeah. silly little low budget horror movies, I think you already know if you like it or not. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go ahead and move into the streaming homework which you assigned uh, last time we did an episode, and that is Batman and Bill. Okay, so this is directed by Don Argot and Sheena M. Joyce, and it tells a story of a man who becomes sort of obsessed with the origins of Batman, and he's looking specifically, um, he becomes very interested in this idea, or this open secret in the world of comic books that Bob Kane, the supposed creator of Batman, did not actually create Batman or certainly did not create him by himself. There was another major player um, at the time in 1939 named Bill Finger um, who designed the costume, who designed the logo, who designed the Batcave, the Batmobile, pretty much all of the original villains. Um, Pretty much everything we know about Batman that makes Batman Batman, including his origin story. Um, Yeah. And was a uh, very instrumental in the early, you know, the early comics uh, that came out of uh, DC with this character. And because of a bad contract that he signed at the time, uh, all of the uh, acknowledgement went to Bob Kane, who took sole credit for the character. Well, he he didn't even sign a contract. It was it was a handshake 
with Bob Kane and and Bob Kane got a good contract. He he just kind of left Bill out of it. Mhm. So Bill ends up becoming more of a shadow writer um and uh as well as you know probably a lot of other people who were working on the book early on. Yeah, so this the protagonist of this documentary who's what's his name? I don't I can't see it right. Mark Tyler Nobleman. He takes it upon himself uh, to sort of track down any living relatives of, of Bill Finger um, to uh, renegotiate Bill Finger's involvement with with the character and have him finally get credit. And through that, we kind of, as you know, he's discovering things, the story sort of opens up and we learn things along with this with this guy. Um, as he's digging up more and more history about Bill, his kids, his grandkids, um, cousins, and, you know, and he has to do this, like, the story starts somewhere in the early 2000s, so as the internet is developing, he's given more resources of for finding mm-hmm. people, but, I mean, at one point, one of his biggest gets, one of his biggest finds is through MySpace, so that'll tell you how far the story goes back. Um, as far as his discovery process, but I was made aware a little bit of the Bill Finger Batman controversy, um, which was known in the industry. It wasn't spoken about a lot, but it was known. So, so something I think if our listeners aren't familiar with kind of the way comic books work, (laughs) Mm -hmm. especially back in the golden age, uh, these creators would, would come up with a character and they would get published by, you know, a bigger publishing company um and a lot of times they would hire out like ghost writers or ghost artists um and because the idea was just like let's we have to have like as many comic strips as possible to kind of keep you know keep pushing them out keep pushing them out yeah and then later that sort of evolved into the companies owning the characters uh a lot of those golden age creators got screwed over yeah um, including the and, creators of Superman. Yeah, they're they're sort of the most known story. Uh, uh, yeah, and I mean Bob Kane was one of those guys who somehow I mean he knew better. He he hung on to his shit as long as he could. Uh, so I'll give him credit for that. But um, so a lo- you know it ends up to where these companies, these big publishing houses, own the characters. Yeah. So the cre- it, it doesn't matter who created them because they you know they sold their rights away or whatever or they were work for hire at the time mm-hmm. and so this isn't that uncommon uh for a comic book creator to create a story or create a character or whatever and get completely shut out of credit for it uh yeah j- similar thing kind of happens with jack kirby in the marvel story um he's a little i mean he's not as as you know he's a legendary icon now but he didn't get to enjoy sort of the same level of acclaim as uh, Stan Lee did. Um, And, you know, it still happens. Even uh, notoriously, there was actually, that was kind of funny, a story just came out about how Ed Brubaker doesn't like uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier because he, you know, like updated the Bucky character and like, Mm -hmm. uh, he's like, He's talking about how he got paid more for like a 10 second on screen cameo than he has for like any of his story rights or anything mm-hmm. because that's just kind of how this works. So, part of the interesting thing about this is, uh, it, you know, there is kind of this some people feel justified in like, well, Bill Finger was work for hire. You know, Bob Kane was technically the creator. And if he didn't get in on the deal, then what separates him from all these other writers and creators and stuff? And I that was, you know, kind of DC's position. Uh, position, yeah, yeah. is like, well, we can't give him this credit. We can't give him this because that kind of opens up these floodgates to all these other creators that are, you know, then there's a precedent uh, for these work for hire creators, like all of a sudden wanting a piece of their pie back, the big difference that this documentary tries to point out is the, just the sheer amount of stuff that Bill Finger created for Batman, and that it was it was in these early days when the character was still being created. So he was he was foundational, you know, yeah. like 
Batman wouldn't exist without Bill Finger's contribution. Or certainly uh, wouldn't exist as we know him today. Um, and that, I think that another exactly. big difference is that you it's not just that DC said, okay, well, you may have designed the character, but we own him. Because that's very common. I mean, that's that's anything, you know. That's yeah. if, if, Again, that's work for hire, yeah. freelance artists, like – yeah, That's there's a ton of situations in, in lots of different industries, whether it's the music industry, whether yeah. where you don't even have control of your own masters, uh, depending on your contract, um, whether it's, you know, the film industry. There's I remember when I was going to film school and I was looking at different schools, of course, I wasn't in the production and I was in theory, but um, a lot of people really liked Chapman University where I went because it was one of the few schools where you owned your student films when you were done. Oh, that's that's insane. Yeah, there's a lot of I mean UCLA, um USC, a lot of the major schools when you make a student film, it belongs to the to the school. And so if you want to uh you know premiere it or show it or sell it or anything you either have to buy it back for who knows how much they want depending on how much they think it's worth or mm. you have to give them a cut of the the profits for whatever you're doing um mm. so this isn't like an uncommon practice the idea of like something owning something but i think that the the big difference here is bob kane not only took credit for the character but he was lying yeah. He was saying, like, you know, here's my yeah. original sketches, which were definitely not the original sketches. Yeah. And, because, yeah. Uh, um, and just, like, totally rewriting history. Well, and, and not only that, he was reaping major rewards. Mm -hmm. You know, he was becoming this sort of Became a celebrity. He tried to sort of stand Lee up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he he kind of did uh for for a little bit there. Yeah. I don't think he was as char ever as charming as mm -hmm. Stanley, but um but yeah, I mean he you know, he's become sort of this pop culture figure himself. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, Bill Finger as a lot of artists do, keeps toiling in obscurity, doesn't gets no benefit from creating this major cultural major cultural icon mm -hmm. uh and dies al you know alone in poverty so it yeah it becomes sort it, of a tragedy on top of that too yeah and then yeah, you so go down the family line the story keeps getting sadder yeah it's kind of fucked up yeah uh yeah so i i think that's a, a big part of it too is it's not just that bill fingers being ripped off uh if you want that you know a similar story look at the super the uh Arch. Siegel and Schuster, yeah. who created Superman. Um, that's again, like sort of that that set the, this precedent. Uh, but this is like a story of I don't know this person reaping all these rewards for something he didn't really do, and somebody else was doing. Mm -hmm. I did think it was funny that the uh, documentary opens up with this guy, you know, who's digging up all this information, going to. I like, wanted to talk about this. Going yes. to grade schools and like. <laughs> You know, does everyone know who Batman is? And like kids are like, yeah. And they're like, well, did you know that the real creator is like, does this guy also do like school tours where he tells kids that Santa Claus isn't real? <laughs> um, uh, that's not, and that's actually not what I, <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about. No, I, um, I do have criticisms of the documentary itself, specifically yes. with this character, with this guy. Now, I originally thought before I looked it up that he also directed the documentary, which makes this a little less annoying that he is oh, just, Oh, I also thought that. Okay. Just that he is a character. So he's our cipher into this because he ended up turning this into a book. This was his. The reason, yes. the way all he justified all this research, he was doing, yeah, yeah, and and trying to reclaim the rights, uh, and not even reclaim the rights. He's just re trying to reclaim the credit, yeah, so that Bill Finger gets credit in the comic books and and in the movies, uh, especially. Um, that was a big thing. Was you know, Bill Finger, he couldn't even get his name on the show or the movies and or, or, or anything. anything. Yeah, I mean, um, it, was, it was always Bob Kane, Bob Kane, Bob Kane. 
Uh, anyway, yeah, so, so I was originally frustrated at parts of the documentary because this guy, when I thought he was the director, because he does a lot of the voiceover work, he does a lot of the narration, um, he feels yeah, there, very much this, like the director of the documentary. Um, there's this funny juxtaposition because the whole movie, he's, he's talking about how uh, Bill Finger didn't get this credit. Uh, Bob Kane got all this credit, but then like the whole time he's like, well, I did this research and I did this and I, I did this, you know, and I spearheaded this fight. The story has a little trouble sort of balancing historicity with this guy's personal journey. And it'd be, and he ends up kind of like inserting himself into the story unnecessarily, in my opinion. Um, but I don't think it's entirely unnecessary because I, I mean, I do think, I just think that they, they try to make that more of a through line than it needed to be. Right. Uh, Especially I, I knowing think, that he is not the director writer of this documentary. I think they obviously were using his book and his journey as sort of the template for how to, as the spine of the story, as they say, and the spine of the narrative. Yeah. Um, and, and that's agree, fine. Like, that works for getting us all, everywhere we need to go in this. But there are times when like the story kind of like stops to get this dude's perspective. And I don't yes. always care. Yes. I, that, yes, that's, that's my point is like, and not even to like say that this guy doesn't deserve this credit. Cause he clearly did a lot of work. Yeah. Um, it was his baby. He, yeah. And, and I think it, you know, I think it's a cool thing that he did. Yeah. Um, I, but yes, I don't think it necessarily vibes with the yeah. documentary as a movie. I don't uh, need the like the super size me or you know yes or the uh, what's his the name Michael the Moore. Michael Moore kind of take on this story. Yeah, I I kind of just wanted it, you know, like uh, uh, Dragnet, you know, just the facts, ma'am. Like I, <laughs> I I wanted it to be a little more. It is narrative, and I think that it's stronger because it's narrative. But I think you can do that without turning it into a hero story about this guy. Exactly. Yes. Yes, that's the point I'm trying to make, and not that what he didn't, not that what he did wasn't cool and kind of heroic but mm-hmm. they they kind of hang on to this like he he is bill fingers defender he is batman metaphor he's bill yeah. fingers batman metaphor and it like gets a little on the nose chauncey yeah yeah and uh i mean that's really my only beef with it as a story because i think um especially as we're ramping up and we're learning more and more and we're getting deeper into it it it's very involving and more so than i thought it would be because i've seen documentaries kind of about this type of thing before I, yeah, there's one I about bill too. waterston um that uh comes to mind uh the creator calvin and Hobbes. but this i think is better and i think more substantial and i think that even if you're not in the comic books or you don't see the value in this type of thing or whatever, um, you could well, still appreciate you, this as a story. If you don't like comic books and don't see the value or whatever, uh, kudos to you for getting this far into the podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, because as we have joked about many times, and I'm surprised we haven't said it yet, this is basically a Batman podcast right. at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I have seen a lot worse comic book documentaries in general they're usually pretty low budget very underproduced uh very talking headsy this one i think is is really well you know aside from some narrative issues i think it's pretty well put together like i think um a lot of the like they do a lot of like recreations with comic book art that I think yeah, is really they, well done. Yeah, some little animatics and stuff that's done like comic book style. And that's a type of thing that could seem sort of precious or annoying, but it's done really tastefully and it's and, and, and done yeah, done well. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I I mean overall I think it's they get a lot of like varied voices in this. Of course you have sort yeah. of like your Kevin Smiths and whoever will pop up in here as you might expect, but you also get um oh I can't think of his name. Um the guy Todd McFarland. Well you get Todd McFarland, which is interesting, and you get a lot of industry types, but you also get um oh what was the guy who helped get who worked for a long, long time to get uh, the the original Batman movies produced? 
I can't think of his oh. name. We actually saw yeah, him yeah, at yeah. Comic-Con a long time ago. Um, and he had worked on Doc Savage before that. But he's, yeah. he's an, yeah, he's they, an old head in the industry. They get a lot of these, like, industry guys. And they get a lot of, like, they get interviews with people who were friends with Bill Finger, which is yeah, and family. pretty insane. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think it's... Uh, uh, the research is really well done, and I think really well presented. Because it, it also, I don't think it's trying to vilify Bob Kane, which could be very easy to do in a story like this. I don't. I don't. I think really it does think a little. It, I mean, he doesn't come off great. No, but it he doesn't. It's not like the King of Kong, <laughs> right? Where that that guy is like a villain. Right. You know, it's. I I feel like you know, and they. I think they try to show. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I do think it's interesting talking about Todd McFarlane. Todd McFarlane specifically because he was one of the founding members of Image, mm-hmm. um, which specifically like was created as a publishing company so that creators could own the rights to their uh, characters, own yeah. the rights to their characters. I, I yeah. almost kind of would have liked to hear maybe not not a lot, but maybe a little bit from some other other comic book creators and like. In a contemporary sense of, of maybe how the industry's changed a little bit. Yeah, um, because, I mean, even though Bob Kane is kind of like what sets the story off, and he's sort of set up in sort of a antagonistic role, um, I think by the end of the movie, when we're talking about the granddaughter of Bill Finger and everything, um, it becomes a lot more of a David and Goliath can't fight City Hall. Like, yeah, you know, because by... Somebody versus a giant corporation. Yeah, because by this point, Bob Kane has passed. Everyone's um, passed. You know, so I, I, I do think, yeah, uh, I do think there's a there's bigger I mean, implications, and, and that's part of the thing with comic books as an American art form is they're really young. You know, like th- these golden age guys are. A lot of them are still with us. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, most of them have passed on by now, but. You know, we're only like two or three gen- really uh, generations of creators in yeah. to comic books. So, you like know, we I think, think of them today. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's something uh, <clears throat> uh, very interesting about just how much the industry has had to sort of adapt within a pretty short amount of time. Well, and if you think um, about it. A lot it, of that has been based off of the movie industry and and. TV rights and and you know all that stuff right and there was a um, the, the kind of great consolidation of uh, of corporations in the mid 80s to mid 90s where less and less companies were owning more and more things and comic books kind of got sucked up now. well it's constantly happening more and more so but it's uh you know a lot of com- these comic book companies and comic book properties kind of got sucked up into that world and so you know now you look at like Disney Marvel and you look at um you know Warner Brothers is owned by who owns Warner Brothers now uh it's so Time Warner Time it's owned War- by AT&T or Viacom or one of those yeah so and you know at a point in time not even that long ago within our memories the yeah. comic book industry was seen as like a very small niche thing that, you know, maybe they could make a little bit of money off of, but basically they didn't really care about it that much until the turn of the century and these movies started doing big business. And now they've built an entire industry on I mean, now these characters. It's, now it's not niche, it's pop culture. Yeah. Like Marvel is the behemoth at the at the movie studios. Right. Like it's Everybody talks about these characters uh, you, you now, and and they're, I mean, they're iconic. They're you know, yeah, and and I we're old enough that I still remember being like hitting an age where I was kind of embarrassed to buy comic books, mm-hmm. and and like you know, this is kids stuff, and but that that's not it's not the case anymore. Pop culture itself has shifted so much that right. it's like, and, and I mean, if if we're talking about going back to the golden age with Batman and and you know like yeah they, these were like serialized um you know they they thought it was just kid stuff and and 
I don't know. Right. Well, and it's not. I'm I'm going down a weird <laughs> rant hole right now. But. It's not even just that the that the you know the notion of superheroes and and these fictional characters is seen as like childish, but it's like the the entire industry of comic books was a niche industry. It was something that you just threw on some magazine racks. Yeah. You know, and, and even though these, even by the mid '90s, a lot of these companies were absorbed. They were not like putting all their eggs in that basket like they are now. Yes. For, well, I mean, well, that's another thing. Even now, they're not really doing that with uh, the comic books because, you know, like pretty notoriously, after uh, the uh, Marvel Studios lost the rights to Fantastic Four because Fox still owned them, uh, they literally wrote the characters, the Fantastic Four, out of the comic books because they couldn't have, like, the larger media rights to them. Mm. So, I mean, that shit still happens. And they still, I mean, they still use the comic books just to sell the movies. Like, yeah. it is it is still not about the comic books. Right. Uh, but, but that's, I think that's sort of a huge difference now, though, is now creators know that. Now they can see that. Now they can sell a comic book based off of the idea. I mean, uh, Keanu Reeves just successfully funded this Kickstarter for a comic book. He, like, co-wrote a comic book. And it was, you know, a lot of comic book creators are like, like, why is he on Kickstarter? He's fucking Keanu Reeves. He could literally pay for the publication himself. And it's already been greenlit for an anime series on Netflix and a movie adaptation. Like, comic books are being, you know, not all of them, but some are being created now with larger franchising potential in mind. They're creating right. them as storyboards for their movie deal, uh, essentially. Yeah. And when Bob Kane and Bill Finger were around, like, that wasn't a thing. No. Like, I mean, when was Batman created? The fucking... 30s. The 30s? 39. Yeah, and yeah. the Batman movie, the big Batman movie didn't come out until 1989. Mm-hmm. And the Batman series didn't come out until 1966. So, you know, it's 30-something years before larger media rights are even going to be on your mind. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't a thing back then. It was just like a kind of cool, fun job you could have as an artist, as a cartoonist that, you know, like... So, I I don't know. I feel I, I feel especially bad for a lot of those golden age guys because it's like they got completely fucked. Now now writers, you know, creatives, they they have other outlets. They can self-publish work. Um, you know, like Ed like I was talking about Ed Brubaker with Winter Soldier, he also has very successful crime noir comics he uh, publishes. You, you know, so it's like they know how the industry works now. At the time, they had no idea this was going to be a media phenomenon. Right, or they would have certainly renegotiated their contracts early on. Um, yeah. If Ed Brubaker knew when he was writing the Winter Soldier stories that there was going to be movies and there was going to be television series and Disney would own all of it. Um, well, I, I mean, you know, he did write the Winter Soldier stuff. I think it was like 2004. It was like early 2000s. It yeah. was before Iron Man was a thing. Right. That's what I'm saying. Um, so anyway. But, but yeah. Uh, I, I feel uh, like I just did a very long uh, rant. <laughs> that was your TED Talk. Um, <laughs> I like this documentary. I think it's really good. And, uh, you know, a few annoyances aside, I think for the most part, it's it's really well done. It's really well researched. Um, it shows you lots of different angles to the story, lots of different players in the story. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. I agree. Uh, there, it, yeah, there were some narrative things that I kind of rolled my eyes at, um, but I, I don't think it made... It didn't make it a bad, uh, bad documentary, and it's one of the better comic book documentaries I've seen. And I've seen a few of them, and and like I said, this one felt a little more legitimate. Mm-hmm. I would say beyond just comic book documentaries, it's one of the better like industry documentaries because you know I watch a lot of these like music docs and some movie docs and stuff, and some are good and some are bad. But I felt like this one was. Uh, really well researched and really, really comprehensive. Yeah, and I, I feel like it explains a lot of, you know, a lot of this contract stuff can get pretty complicated, and and there's a lot of details. Yeah, a lot of that stuff know. could be super boring. 
if you're just yeah, talking about who owned what when and you there's a a much drier way to tell this story than the way they 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 chose to tell it exactly they found so the I human think, uh, element they found the characters in it yeah 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 um okay well uh next episode for the streaming homework we're going to be talking about tenacious d and the pick of destiny which i've never yeah i've never seen have you no, I haven't. Uh, we're we're doing it. We missed um, it in its initial run back in 2006. It's on uh, Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some yeah. of our friends were talking about this on Twitter, and there was there seemed to be a high demand for this conversation. Should, yeah, and Jack Black's really hot right now. Yeah, so we're gonna do that. We're gonna talk about uh, talk about this movie. Um, and if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics in this episode or past, you can email us at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on our social media at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can follow us and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. You can follow me individually at VC Cassidy. You can at uh, Twitter and Instagram. You can also read my movie reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal movies. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or iTunes or whatever it is, please leave us a star rating and a one sentence review. It helps more people find the show. Yeah, um, I'm very excited to hear what Patrick thinks of our thoughts about uh, Batman and Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, longtime listener of the show. I'm sure he has thoughts. Um, you can check me out on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid, uh, on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid, and you can follow my nerdy art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic, where I do drawings of stuff like Batman, um, because I wish I had. I wish I was an exploited comic book creator. (laughs) There's still time. There's still time to get in on that. All right. Um, That'll be the episode. We're all equal here. Sort of like communism, but not really. Bye.